Hello and welcome to Techno Social. Our guest today was Will Strong, who is the co-founder of Autonomy. They're a think tank researching the future of work. We had a lot of discussions about what work is, what it might look like in the future, and how it has how it's been in the past. And then I think we talked a great deal as well about the four-day working week, which is a proposal that they very much advocate for, um, and a proposal that I personally am very much in favor of, but also a proposal that has a great deal of merit um, for many reasons that we will get into. Hope you enjoyed the show, guys. Welcome to Techno Social. Welcome back to episode five. I five, it is. Yes. So our guest today is Will Strong, who is the uh, co-founder of Autonomy, a think tank researching the future of work. And uh, yeah, I think work is something we're hearing more and more about recently. With the particularly with the possibility of kind of technological unemployment, I think mm. that's really the phrase that goes around a lot. Mm. Um, so, what's kind of got you interested in work in the beginning the think tank? Mm. Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Mm. Um, so I think what really got us starting, started to think about work really, is about 2015. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a few of us, you know, engaging in reading groups, um, looking at some of some, you know, some texts like Inventing the Future, which came out in 2015, Kathy Weeks' work, which came out in 2011. And like, you know, around that time, there's a number of, um, you know, Paul Mason's book, Post-Capitalism, things mm. like that, which were really getting people excited, particularly, you know, inside universities, but also in, in all sorts of places. So we started reading some of these texts, um, at the same time reading some of the reports around automation. So there was the 2013 or 2011, I can't, you have to correct me on that, um, paper from Oxford University, Carl Frey and um, Michael Osborne, around, you know, what's the technical possibility of automation um, in particularly the US, but also the UK as well. And so there's this kind of confluence of, of, of literature and reports which were coming out at the time, which made us think, well, actually, where, where is the where is the serious thought being done on this? And where's the, you know, what, what is it, you know, what, what kind of, what theory of work or what kind of, what understanding of work makes sense in these times? Mm. So that was, that's really where we started um, uh, thinking about, for example, starting autonomy. But I guess that my interest in work stems, goes back a bit actually in a way. Mm. Um, I remember reading Hannah Arendt's uh, Human Condition, which is an amazing book about, work, labour, action, which really, really kind of, I mean, the book makes you really think about what's the relationship between humans and their activity more generally, and what's the difference between labour and work and action, in, in her words. So, you know, Hannah Arendt's work, and particularly a few other a few other bits and pieces, I think my background's in philosophy, really. Mm. So I think, um, you know, many philosophers have tried to kind of ruminate on what work is, often because they themselves are probably often quite aristocratic so they're kind of like what is this thing that people do <laughs> um, and so I don't know it's kind of it made sense to me that around 2015 a lot of these kind of um, this kind of uh, the traditional philosophy which I was I had studied 
came together with a lot of these kind of texts and new reports coming out at the time. So that's kind of the the melting pot, as it were. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so autonomy kind of came together out of that confluation of influences. Um, mm. What were the kind of initial thoughts you had when you were actually putting autonomy together? What was it there to do? Yeah, good question. So we... We thought, okay, what, where, where is the policy work being done on this? Um, and by policy work, I mean, you know, looking at different, uh, where is, where, where's the thinking being done to kind of like change work in society, not just in, like, in terms of like a book or, you know, a text which influences the way people think. How do we, where, where, where's that normally done? That's normally done in think tanks. So the think tank is an interesting organization because it's kind of been around more or less well, in different forms, the, the kind of the idea of a research organisation has been around for many years, for centuries. But the think tank has really, really kicked off after World War Two, and that was set off to really push a certain mode of economic and political thought onto the mainstream agenda. And more or less from the seventies onwards, the think tank, i.e., a well-funded research organisation with a huge staff, was basically a kind of a lobbying organization made to try and influence policy um, by by creating a new economic common sense. Okay, so I mean, go into that if you want. That's quite an interesting topic in general. Um, but when we were looking at, okay, you know, here's what here's some of the problems we seem to be facing in the UK today. So we're looking at in the UK and, and elsewhere, to be honest. So mm. precarious work, auto, potential automation, um, gender equality, um, you know, different... Uh, yeah, obviously the environmental uh, crisis coming you know, coming towards us, and so w- when we looked at those different, let's say, aspects of what we call the crisis of work, um, we thought, well, you know, wh- where are the responses that we think are we were starting to think were, were relevant, and we couldn't really see them anywhere. So we mm-hmm. we looked at um, there's lots of good stuff being done in in different places, but we thought, how do we how do we rec- how do we have an organisation which actually pushes for a progressive future of work has quite a tight remits, just work, we don't do land, we don't do tax reform, we don't do, we, we're looking at the future of work, how can we con- condense that, or like distill that into one place? So there's some good stuff done in the Economics Foundation, about 2010 they put a, a paper out called 21 Hours, um, and then they, they, they consistently did a, a few bits and bobs here and there, but they more or less kind of turned away from thinking about working time. So we thought, okay, that's interesting, you know, where, how can we p- pick up the baton? Um, some of the work that IPPR um, we're doing at the time was around the same time we're also kind of touching on similar things how to manage automation how to deal with precarious zero hour contracts things like that mm. and we thought well there's some good stuff going on but that's actually you know where is the place where we can actually um, kind of push this this agenda really um, and so what it was intended to do was really to do that um, and actually we, we knew if we were looking at the kind of Envir- the intellectual environment in the academy, but also outside of it. We knew that there's plenty of good people working on this stuff and in writing books or writing papers, but often, you know, it doesn't really um, hit, let's say, uh, policymakers or, let's say, the general public necessarily. Mm. They might not read Inventing the Future. Um, you know, books these days don't sell much, um, off- well, often don't sell that much, that many copies. So they're, they're important because they make an intervention, but they need to be somehow amplified. Mm. So we, so we thought, well, let's get these people together. Let's get them into an organisation. Let's make them affiliated. Let's start. Um, you know, we've got the resources in terms of people. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's see what we can we, we can start. And we started quite modestly, um, but we 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 we've kind of we've started to be able to do what we intended to do, which is have an influence mm-hmm. on 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 the media. 
So that's that's really the intent. The media, but also journalists. Sorry, there's the media. Media, journalists, politicians, and activists are all uh, starting to all get engaged in in the kind of the things we're talking about. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think I think I th- I'm, I'm pleased with how it's going really. Mm. And so one of the phrases you used there was the the progressive future of work. Mm. I think. Um, mm. So that sounds like a vision. What is kind of what are some of the principles of this? Yeah, progressive future work. Mm. Yeah, so I think we 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 tend to believe, like basically, I think it should come from an analysis of what wage labour is. So I, I mean, and I'm already using the word wage labour because I'm unpacking what work is in general, right? Mm. So fine, the future of work that includes wage labour, my employment, employment, but also unpaid labour in the household, and also various other things which are not quite household work. They're not quite employment, but they're also what, what, what some people like Ivan Illich or others call shadow work, things like commuting. You know, right. It's like you don't get paid for it, but it's also something, it's not really free time either, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, other examples of shadow work would be something like, um, uh, queuing. Like when, for example, you know, just because a company doesn't want to have enough employees to, to see everyone, it'll force you to queue more because it doesn't really mind. It's your time. It's your it's your energy to do that. Mm. So we can talk about some things like queuing, things like, for example, choosing your own holidays now. You know, mm. travel agents used to be much more of a thing. Uh, they, there'd be someone paid to find a holiday for you, but now you do it at home yourself. And that's probably shadow work we're quite happy to do because we like to choose our own holidays or whatever. But ultimately, mm. it was, is work that someone used to be paid for. Anyway, so I think it's important to unpack what work is, first of all. Mm. But I mean, aside from that, um, when we what we think the future of work should be or what progressive or progressive future of work consists in um, it, as I say it's based on an, an analysis of what each of these things are so what is what is wage labour what is employment now for this you need to really you know have kind of a historical account um, to be honest but I think to kind of both that up um, wage labour is effectively you being paid for your time and energy to carry out some work for an employer. Um, mm. And almost by definition, it's not freedom. I, I, you are at the disposal of your employer with various rights and, and like, you know, working time directives in place. But ultimately, your employer is, is, is there to make you do whatever the, the company deems is necessary to produce or to give a service or whatever it is. Um, ultimately, I think, I think um, I like Elizabeth Anderson's term, uh, a job is basically like private government. It's like having a having a, a government which is undemocratic, strictly hierarchized, and no one's held accountable. More or less, you can basically be told what to do, um, and different, different there's different levels of pay within this private government. I quite like her formulation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so effectively, you know, we don't really have a romantic view of what employment is. You know, we don't think it's necessarily a, um, an ideal situation where the only access to people's survival is via working for for an income. Mm-hmm. Um, we think ultimately uh, that perhaps we should we should perhaps loosen the links, loosen the t- the kind of let's say the reins in which uh, or the strings which are the invisible strings as someone once called it, which our employers have over our lives in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, that doesn't mean we're anti-business or anti-enterprise. Um, it just means that ultimately, you know, if we want to have a future where there's, there's you know more equality, more democracy, more freedom, I think freedom is the key the key mm-hmm. concept here. Then then one in which we can have much more choice about where we work, about whether we work, and and how we work, and for, for how much we work, how much you know, how much we work for, um, is one we're kind of pursuing. So that's why something like the shorter working week, um, mm. for us, seems quite an obvious choice for, for a policy we should we should push for because. Mm. 
it's been, you know, it's been the kind of the ambition of workers' movements, intellectuals, economists, philosophers for decades, if not centuries, for the reduction mm. of toil. Because, mm. you know, some things are necessary. The necessary toil was much more of a thing when we had, you know, much um, less developed technological yeah. When everyone was farmers, like, work wasn't really an option. You worked or you starved. Mm. Like, exactly. I think, I think that attitude has not fully carried through, but I think it is kind of there underneath the surface of how everyone thinks about work in society today. That is, like, basic idea is you work or you starve. And um, it's interesting to me sort of how, you know, you said unpacking the concept of work, how most people would probably view a four-day working week as being an anti-work proposal because you're proposing less work. But, it, you know, I think a good example, I have a friend who um, works at the uh, National Archives, and um, he, when I was talking to him about his job, he says, like, I would be a lot better at my job if I um, basically had more time to sleep. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, he would probably get more done if he had less hours, or if he, like, in a way, more free time is actually conducive to more work happening and not less. Mm. But then we kind of have this preconception in our mind of hard work, and that's what we value. We don't like people who, you know, sort of working out the most effective way to do your job. Everyone kind of agrees tacitly that that's a good thing. But then when it's like, what makes you a good worker? Most people's image is lots of overtime, like bent over at your desk all day, like really putting in loads of effort. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Do you think Do you think that that idea of work is basically being about putting in lots of effort mm-hmm. is something that needs to change? Yes, I think there's because three things I think we should pick up on there. One is, I think, yes, I think it's, it, and it has been proven in, in many different case studies that ultimately um, having more freedom and more well-being outside of work actually does help you in work. So as you were saying, like your friend, is, you know, actually I need to have more rest so that in my job I can actually, like, actually, be, the quality of my work's better. Secondly, at the same time, and this is where I thought you were going with this, with the idea of unpacking work, um, it's not... We shouldn't get fallen into the trap of thinking that when just because we're not in employment, we're not working or doing something which is difficult or purposeful or whatever. So you find you say you reduce your working week by half. The rest of the week, you're not necessarily just going to be stacked staring to the middle distance. Although you know, I don't care what you do at the time. Um, you also will probably be doing something you think that is better work. You might be you know, contributing to a like a community event, or you might actually be designing a new, you know, uh, widget of some kind or whatever. And I consider that work too, just because it's not paid. That, that, that's an interesting discussion to have where actually we slip into, again, thinking employment is just work, not saying you work, but I think it's, it's interesting to think about that. Mm. To answer your question, um, yes, I think I quite like this term, the humble brag. Um, as you know, oh, you know, I have to stay late. God, yesterday was so hard because I'm, you know, actually the boss didn't leave. I had to stay and do my job really well. Yeah, this kind of um, this culture of overwork. You're absolutely right, and that has been cultivated over a long time. Whether it's and um, by a long time, I mean centuries of distinguishing between oh, the undeserving poor and the deserving poor. Those who are just idle paupers mm-hmm. in the 19th and 18th centuries and 17th centuries, and those who are like oh, the the working poor who actually do deserve. Um, you know, a life because they're working really hard, whereas those who are working less hard, you know, um, let, let's discard them. So there's a long history to it, and very actually, 
history which people, not people don't know, they feel like it's just a modern phenomenon, but actually it goes back a long way. Um, but I think that does need to change because it is very pernicious. And I do think that, um, you know, not only do we have the pressure from employers, from our bosses and from uh, often politicians to say you should work harder, but also we have a kind of shared, almost like intersubjective kind of pressure we put on ourselves as like, you know, oh, I can see you slightly slacking off. I feel resentful that I can't, you know, I'm not doing the same thing or I see you working really hard and I feel like, oh God, I should up my game. So I think mm. that's like downward pressure from all angles in a way. And I think um, uh, ultimately, you know, let's, let's consider you might want to start considering more utopian aspects of, of what we want from work. You know, does it, if you're presented with a situation where would you rather um, continue working the same hours you are now, perhaps even more hours, or would you rather, um, no matter how much you like your job, would you rather aspects of your job were um, potentially automated, allowing you to, you know, reduce your working week, you know, no loss in pay, and allow you to do more creative things. If you, you put that kind of situation to someone, they might say, well, actually, I'm not that attached to my work, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you, you know, it's, it's, and I think the key here, just to round off this discussion in a way, is, is that work is a contested ideological field in a way mm-hmm. so you know actually we have contradictory feelings about work even when we're talking about it so on the one hand someone says do you, do you think do you think hard work's important yes um, yeah it's really really important okay what if I could reduce a working week by two days and you don't lose any money would you do it yeah of course I would it's like well I thought you said hard work's important yeah I know but you know so yeah. I think there's it's, you're always, there's always a contradictory um, and contested field as to how we think about work I think it's important to think about the idea of alternatives so that you then put it into relief what, what you actually, you know, kind mm-hmm. of settle on in a way. How responsive do you think employers are to this line of thinking? Because, like, one of the things you mentioned there was about, say, if you could automate some of your job and then have less time at work. But I can imagine an employer go, well, I've automated that, so you still have, I still have 40 hours of your time, so I'm just going to put you on, on this, rather than actually freeing up any time. I suppose that's the... Mm-hmm. The vision that automation wouldn't take anything away mm-hmm. and just change mm-hmm. what people have to do. I mean, in your work you've done so far, what have you been speaking to employers and what sort of things come through from them? Mm. Yeah, so there's a, f- there's a few things. I think you're absolutely right. We shouldn't consider automation to be um, to be inevitably this or inevitably that, and we shouldn't consider it to be um, something which. Um, has some kind of neutral impact. I think that the, the point about automation or automation technology is that it's always, to some extent, serving a particular project. So let's say, and you're right, you know, some employers will be like, okay, well, like, let's, 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 how can we automate this work? Let's say, for example, my workers are getting pretty, pretty angry about their working conditions. They're demanding more. They're going on strike. Automation seems pretty, um, appealing when you can be like well actually you know, I can probably automate try and automate this factory and therefore I don't need mm. you know to actually worry about these people anymore so there's the you know we should be wary of the potential uses of certain forms of tech now and this is going to sound this is going to sound perhaps more nuanced than than is you know than is helpful but basically it depends on the employer what they think mm. so so employers we're working with companies we're working with are intrigued and are running trials on shorter working weeks in their company because they think of themselves as, as forward thinking. They they value their staff's loyalty and their happiness and they want to retain them um, and they want to recruit new staff. So in some industries, for example, advertising, um, staff retention is really, really, really hard. Um, there are often bigger companies, Facebook, Google, 
for example, who can hire for more money and their job is, is in different ways, perhaps more appealing. And so the turnover in some of these advertising companies is actually really, um, is, is huge. And so what they, they were, they've kept some, some of them have come to us and said, well, you know, maybe we could use this as a staff retention strategy. You can say, come work with us, four day week, five days pay. Sure, your pay is not going to be as good as Google and Facebook, but you basically have a three-day weekend the whole time. Mm. So, mm. so it, there are. It depends which company you're talking about. Obviously, some companies, maybe like a one or two-person company, they, they might not be able to afford to do a four-day week um, in such a small in such a small way. Having said that, I think you know much larger companies um, in the UK, you know, have huge profit margins, things like that, are, are massive companies and um, definitely could, could afford to do a four-day week, um, but ultimately, you know, it's not really in their rationale. So, like, someone like Sports Direct or Amazon Fulfillment Centers, I don't think they're going to be getting their order pickers doing four-day weeks, same day, same, same, same week's pay. I think um, what's interesting here is just to get a bit of perspective on, mm. on the UK economy is that 0.1% of all companies are large companies. So that's 250 employees or more. There's only about 7,500, according to the recent MNS stats I've been looking mm-hmm. at. So the majority of companies are actually small companies or medium. Um, but very, only 7,000 companies are, are, are large companies, and yet they make up 40% of all employment. So they make up, they got the largest share of employment out of small, medium, or large companies. Um, but there's very few of them, and they you know, obviously make, they have, they have the largest turnover. It's over a trillion pounds per year. Um, so like this is... If you put it in that perspective, actually, well, you know, maybe the companies which are, which, you know, should be encouraged to have four day weeks are not small, small or medium employers who actually, you know, are often struggling to get by anyway, but huge companies which are making loads of money, mm. um, and, and have a huge, um, percentage of the workforce that would make a huge difference to the UK economy. So that was mm. a bit of a tangent, but I think it's interesting to think about which companies, um, perhaps if there was going to be legislation or policy, where you know which companies should be perhaps the the kind of um, let's say the vanguard of this if, if we're going to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And so, with regards to sort of the you know the benefits of a four day working week, and certainly for a company that is having problems with staff retention, you can kind of immediately see why. Oh, these guys are going to you know like an idea that is you know isn't. A, doesn't necessarily have any downsides with regards to the quality of work that gets done, but also means that they're going to keep employees. You can, you know, there's an mm-hmm. obvious economic, like, market kind of motivation for why that company might be interested in this idea. But mm-hmm. then you might get someone, you know, a CEO from Amazon who's, you know, just finished reading Hayek on his way here, and he's like, ah, well, we pay our employees, you know, an hourly rate of, let's say, eight pounds an hour, and that is the market value of their labor, and so if they want to work four days a week, that's fine, but they're only going to get four days' salary, because their hours are only worth, mm-hmm. like, eight pounds each. So, I, I, do you think that that kind of thinking maybe gets in the way of an idea like the four-day working week? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the truth is, you know, I guess I didn't, I didn't give, when I said that it depends on different employers, um, I guess I didn't give the other side of the, you know, of the coin, which is what you just basically, um, described that, you know, it's the four day week, just to put it bluntly, won't come about just because good policy has been put out there. The four day mm-hmm. week will come about because of a number of things, good, you know, good ideas and policy around how to implement it, how you should go about it, but also there's going to have to be struggles from social movements, going to be struggles from worker, um, you know, from unions. Um, if you look at unions at the moment, um, 
some unions. So, for example, the Communication Workers Union, they've they've already bargained for a, a, a reduction of four hours over the next four years with no loss in pay with their employer, Royal Mail. So that's, you know, that's, for example, one way where these things can be achieved. And those situations, you know, um, many employers will be resistant to the idea because, as you say, for them, they will be stuck to the same, um, let's say, rationale, which is not only is the market rate, but ultimately the, you know, the more hours I can push to squeeze out my workers, the more I can get done. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily true. There's, 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 there's plenty of good research to show that the longer hours you do, your actual productivity takes a real dive. And therefore, actually, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that we're, we're just machines that can run for, you know, the 40-hour week non-stop. Are there any numbers there that you have to mind? Just because that's quite an interesting... No, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a good. I mean, no. But if you can go to our report, actually, there's mm. a good. We, we reference a good study on call center workers who, who's the amount simply the amount of calls that they're putting through after. I think it's over. Um, I can't remember the exact hours. We put it in the reports. Actually, like it really like drops off. And yet, you know, it, it still wouldn't make sense for an employer, according to their own rationale, to say, okay, well, you can just stop work then because ultimately the quality and the quantity of your calls is not that good after that. No, they mm. said we should just keep working because I'm sure we can get mm. something out of you. Um, so I think there's obviously going to be resistance and there'll be resistance from um, particularly, you know, employers who haven't got a great record on how they treat workers. I mean, I was, just, I was just writing the other day and I looked up, you know, within a three-year period, Amazon had 600 ambulance call-outs, which is more or less, you know, if you do the numbers of how many days there's over three years, just over a thousand days, that's basically like 60% of the year. It's just like each day there's at least one Amazon, you know, one one ambulance going to to Amazon to pick up a worker who's just basically like, you know, either passed out from often heat exhaustion and things like that. So Mm -hmm. that's that's an aside and me digging into Amazon there, but basically some employers will, 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 will always resist this. And in fact, if you look at history, they always have. So when the, when that, when the 10 hour day was one, when the nine hour day was one, um, and, w- and was reduced without a loss in pay. You read some of the newspapers from the Times, and actually, um, the same things are being said today in the, mm. in the papers. So employers being like, "No, like you know, it's famously, famously in, in Capital Volume One, Marx kind of laughs at certain employers who are saying, "No, we make all our money in that eleventh hour. We can't, we can't get down to ten hours because that's where yeah. all our money's made in that eleventh hour." And, <laughs> and in fact, that's happened all the way down the line. So you know, fine. Now we have an average of forty hours a week and in different ways. That's that's breaking down, mm. but still. Yeah, fifty hours, sixty hours. Um, that was def- that was the normal at the time, and suddenly, you know. So I think there's always going to be resistance to the idea, but I think ultimately, um, if you look at recent YouGov data, seventy-one um, percent of the public think that would be a good idea. Of the UK mm-hmm. public, which is the, which is the highest in Europe actually at the moment. Um, wow. So so like there's huge public support for it, just like nationalising industries. There's huge public support support for it, um, and ultimately, you know, th- th- there will be some clashes, but. Um, all good ideas will. So, mm. I mean, it is amazing when you think about the 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 history of the working week and working hours, right? I mean, you hear four day working week, and maybe something in your head thinks, "What?" But could that be possible? But then you remember, yeah, eleven hour days, twelve hour days, kids working in yeah. factories all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Equal pay for women, mm. like the right to strike. All of that, like... Exactly. And at every turn, employers going kind of like... I think there's actually a great cartoon which actually catalogues it all throughout history, like, starting with, like, 
if workers have the right to unionize, then none of them will do any work. And it's like, <laughs> but if they workers only work twelve hours a day, it will eliminate our profit margins. And it's like, oh, but if we pay women the same amount of men, it's oh, but if we can't trade slaves, like you know. And at every turn, they're kind of like, this is going to ruin the economy, and like you know, a lot of different things have ruined the economy. But employment law is is is, is, is certainly not the biggest, um, the, the 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 main culprit when it comes to economic collapse. I would say like, that's that's yeah that's. That's a good point, actually. I think, you know, yeah, that, that's a very good point. I think that's, you know, often these discussions, we should probably just preface it by saying, can you just go look at that cartoon for a second and then we'll have an actual chat. So we like, you know, before we get into some of these fallacies, which you, which you often come up again and again and again. Mm. Is there a, a question of class here? Because one of the things that occurred to me when you were talking about, say, the, uh, the advertising companies and Google and Facebook is that mm. these are all quite elite jobs mm-hmm. and kind mm-hmm. of employee turnover there is, well, it's it's not a surprise that someone might leave and it's tough to find talent to fill the spot. Whereas mm-hmm. in sort of more traditional working class jobs, I think there may be less of an incentive of employers to actually try and retain their staff. It's like, if you don't want to work, then fuck off, I'll find someone else. Yeah, no, mm. that, that's definitely true. And I think actually, you know, this it's something to do with class, but also something to do with what happens within uh, modern capitalist economies over the last 250 years is, is, is something called de-skilling and standardisation. So... There's a reason why, you know, I've spoken to a, diff- a whole variety of audiences. I've spoken to uh, WeWork, a lot of tech and creative types. I've spoken to, you know, NHS um, uh, workers, you know, where I used to work. My mum's a nurse as well. I've spoken to all, sort- you know, all different types of, you know, of people who work in different jobs. And it's interesting that the discussions are very different. Some people, as you say, have a lot more have a lot more autonomy in their role, feel like they can actually push back on employers a lot more, things like that. Um, but I often think in my head, I was like, well, you know, if you're an employer found a way of automating CAD or automating some of your graphic design jobs, you know, don't, don't think for a second that they're going to, like, that they have some kind of, like, emotional attachment to, you know, your position. Yeah. Um, the, the, reason why you, the only reason why you can push back is because you're, you're, you have a certain amount of, um, let's say, a certain skill or a certain amount of, let's say, cultural human, not cultural human capital, which ultimately they haven't found a way of easily replacing yet. Whereas mm-hmm. if you, the further down the ladder of, of, of the job market, um, you see much more this tendency to standardization and de-skilling, which has been going on for, you know, um, throughout capitalism. So good examples were things like there were, there were many artisan or craftsmen, craftsmen, they were really men at the times, you know, women weren't really part of the labor market, 19th century, early 20th century. Employers had to find a way of basically standardizing and then ultimately, um, ultimately automating this kind of work and basically breaking mm. the power of workers. You can say, well, no, you need my skill set. I can make a really nice basket or, or bench or whatever. Um, employers had to find a way um, in order to break worker power, but also to break, uh, to, to be able to make the, the process much more efficient and, and much, much less costly than the wages of mm. these artisans to actually break down a particular job into a whole range of different parts, standardize it. And so what then, then what that then means is that you can bring in workers with a very rudimentary skill set and say, all you have to do is just do one thing every day, push the button, push the button or just clack that and, and, it, and it goes. But many of them are still cheaper than having an artisan who would make like a really fine, you know, a piece of mm. whatever. What the point I'm getting to is ultimately, mm. you're right. Um, the more the lower, like lower wage jobs, tend to be much more standardised. Um, that's not to say that they're always less skilled, though. You think about things like care work. Where actually, it's quite a skill to be affective and mm. and, and very physical in how you deal with um, your, um, you know, those in your care. However. You can see you can see tendencies of standardisation, and that does mean then that with the interchangeability of people, 
do you work well on the team? Are you good as an individual? Can you do basically Word and Excel and email? Um, mm. With that interchangeability, then also they're also disposable as well to some extent. So employers can be like, well, if you don't want to work here, you can just, you can just get lost. They don't have to give them that carrot. You're quite right. That's why we can't rely on uh, simply on companies with the, who actually have these certain incentives to um, to put you know to, to to put into practice a forty-eight week. Some companies are brilliant and will do that, and they want to be known as good companies. Um, but that is potentially a small amount of the of, of the uh, of the economy. And that's why it will take policy, basically, uh, policy and pressure from 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 the public, basically. Um, and because that's that's effectively how economies do change, you can't just wait for outriders to simply just just you can't just wait for outriders to adopt these these practices. Mm. Mm. And and so, do you? In, I mean, do you envisage a future where sort of the four day working week leads to a wider economic change? Is it basically sort of how it is now, except we all have three day weekends and like Thursday is Friday and. Or, or, is, or is, or is this part of sort of a wide? You see a wider change in attitude towards, um, towards stuff like employment, towards you know what people do and don't get paid for, and what is and is not considered work. Mm. Um, I think there's a few questions in those two questions. Really, I think on the one hand, if you move to a four-day week, that would be a huge change for. With, with no loss of pay, a huge change for society. So you'd have something to shift between your time, which is, you know, um, under the control of um, your employer, and the time which is, let's say, autonomous. And if not under the control of your employer, you know, just time where you have to do something in order to get by, which actually probably isn't what you, you, cho- you choose to do. Um, that shift is huge. When you start having more, more or less 50-50, and this is not quite that, but getting there, then suddenly... How would that shift people's, um, you know, uh, perspective towards that those four days? I think actually, if you have if you have a, a long weekend, suddenly, you know, work's kind of put in its place a bit more, and you're suddenly like, well, this is just a thing. This is perhaps isn't exhaustive of my of my identity. This is perhaps something I do for only half the week, and actually, I've, I've got to actualize myself in different ways. That would be huge. I think it would create a huge cultural shift. Um, it allow people to be more politically engaged. It would allow people to, you know, perhaps rethink. Well, okay, so if we're both going to have an extra day off now in a, in a couple, maybe we can do some sharing of the childcare. Who knows? You know what I mean? Mm. So I think it would be a huge shift. Um, I think that would lead to other things. Perhaps it could be like a cascade of different other things. Yeah, you know, we could think about public space. Town centres. Mm. These things need to be rethought if we're going to have more time in these spaces and be like, wait, why are we here in just like a, a shopping mall where there's just like a bench and shops and that's all I do? <laughs> you know, there's like there's nothing else I can do with my time, which is not just consuming or working. And by consume, I mean buying stuff. Okay, but at the same time, I think something like a four-day week or something around changing the world of work works best when it's part of a raft of other kind of economic changes too. Mm. So changing ownership, for example. There's some really good work going on. Um, the Commonwealth Think Tank, which is a new a new think tank kind of uh, alongside autonomy, which is um, pursuing like, different ownership solutions. Um, so I think changing ownership, you know, whether it means cooperative ownership, whether it means state ownership, kind of new innovative, whether it's regional, doesn't have to be centralised in London, for example. Ownership matters because you can then dictate what happens in companies and what happens in national utilities, the price of, of train fares, things like that. So if you had a four-day week, you know, cheaper utilities, 
um, maybe even free utility, free services like um, transport, things like that. Who knows? And um, there's, there's lots of good thinking going on at the moment. You'd, you'd have a whole a radically changed economy. And I think what's but what's important to keep in mind about all economic changes, and I guess this is something which I think would be a message to anyone who's interested in the new economic thinking going on in the UK and abroad, mm. is I think well. On the one hand, we have to change the structures, but we also have to change how the economy feels to be in it. You know, like it's yeah. fine to say, let's change um, the ownership, let's nationalise this, or let's create a co-op. But ultimately, you know, some some cooperatives don't actually. It feels just like you're working for any other firm. You know what I mean? Like it's like you don't necessarily feel, oh, great, I'm. You know, this is a new realm of freedom for me. Actually, what does it mean to change ownership? What it means, okay, we can have shorter working weeks, or it means you have, you know, some investment in the firm itself, so you get like a payout every year from the profits, things like that. So you've got to think about how an economy feels and also how it's structured to make that feeling occur, so that everyone in the country, and this will filter down to politics and culture, everyone in the country feels, or a huge majority of the country feels, things have gotten better because. I've got more money in the pocket. I've got more time for myself, um, and you know, my my health and my family are taken care of in different ways. Um, that's what's really important about it, not just tinkering around with policy, which you think will, which will, which is necessary, and you think will will um, you know make people's lives better, but you, you know, you're not quite sure how it's going to be actualized. How much political backing is there for this kind of new economic thought? I mean, I know, I think. John McDonald, right, has, well, I don't know exactly, he's had some kind of interaction with the organisation, um, and that kind of Jeremy Corbyn's labour is perhaps this, is, would it be correct to call it kind of like new leftist economic, economic thought? I mean, that word's been bandied about, there's been new socialism, there's been, you know, um, hmm, yeah, I mean, labels are, you know, What's interesting is something, something about something like Corbynism is interesting because most most of what Corbynism is is actually thinking beyond just one man. So it's ironically called Corbynism, but actually it kind of covers a whole range of economic thinking which will persist long long after Corbyn's left leadership of the Labour Party. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, names can be hindrances, but also they do sum up to some extent what's what's going on. Um, I think what's interesting is it's not just in the UK as well. So I think the UK, the UK Labour Party is putting out some really innovative policy documents. You know, the, the alternative models of ownership report. The, they're doing things about land reform, education's kind of finally getting back on the menu of like let's let's think about interesting education, not just is it tuition fees or not. We're actually thinking about curriculums. You know, climate change has been announced; it's going to be on the curriculum of Labour coming to power, for example. The so Labour doing some interesting, really interesting stuff. We shouldn't forget that the Green Party have been backing a four-day week and, and a basic income for about four or five years. In fact, actually, that's not true. I found I found a pamphlet from the eighties, a manifesto from the Green Party in the eighties, which had a basic income in the eighties there, which is quite which is quite nice to read. Wow, yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, they've been a long way, yeah. They've been, you know, because the basic income is an old idea, but so so the Green Party should be acknowledged for actually being a kind of like actually pushing innovative ideas, even when the two main parties in the UK, Conservatives and Labour, were pretty. Um, uh, dormant, or let's say, or, or actually quite conservative, mm. small C, both of them. You know, during austerity, the Greens were, were very much like anti austerity. You know, and it mm. took a while before Labour was suddenly like, actually, anti austerity is is what we believe in. Yeah, it so, took another election after austerity started being implemented before it was even talked about. Exactly. The Party, like. Exactly. Um, so I think, so there's some good stuff in the UK, and it's not just Labour Party, Greens, Greens do some interesting stuff too. But also, so, so we're doing some work with the Valencian government in Spain, and they have just announced in that they just won an election about 
three or four weeks ago. Um, well, yeah, the uh, socialists, the Spanish Socialist Party, got the biggest share of the yes, vote in the yeah, yeah. coalition. But they have they, exactly, but there were also votes for each region. Oh, yeah. So Valencia, Valencian, the Valencian government is um, a, a party called Compromise, and then the, the socialists you're talking about, they're in coalition, mm-hmm. and they're great. They're, they're really, really um, quite a young government. They're, really, they're pushing really interesting stuff. And their vice president said they're going to pursue a 32-hour working week within five years, no loss in pay, which is fairly significant because John McDonald said, okay, we're going to, you know, I'm interested in a shorter working week and we're going to commission a, a review by Lord Robert Skidelsky. And he also, as you say, he, he engaged with our report quite nicely. But I mean, that's like him saying, let's look into it. Whereas yeah. actually the vice president in Valencia is like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to pursue this and we're going to help autonomy. I hope we're going to help them do that. So. The economic thinking shifting. You know, I've heard of also about governments in Slovenia who are, doing, who are quietly mm. doing some interesting new economic thinking in the similar kind of vein there. I remember actually a long time ago, at least a year ago, if not more, and I really, this is one of those, this is very much hearsay. I remember reading somewhere that Sweden was thinking about implementing a four day working week. Do you know anything about what happened with that? Yeah, so they have, so they've had, they, one of their famous trials in this care home in Gothenburg, which was. Yes, basically a six six hour day, um, and it went really well. That's like the shining, one of the shining examples of a trial where actually the staff are much more productive, um, and you know they, they, I don't know exactly where they're, how they're moving on from that, but it was a couple of years ago, as you say. Um, so that's yeah, often seen as a good example of like care work, not manufacturing, but care work. Actually, um, which is quite an arduous and hard work job to actually see the benefits of a four day week. Um, not only that, you know, if you look across the pond in America, you know, this kind of new uh, thinking, particularly people like Sanders and, and you know, AOC, pushing things like a Green New Deal. Um, there's still some way to go before the shorter working week is mainstream there, because often what's talked about in the Green New Deal is like job guarantees, which I, I, I don't think is, is a good idea. Um, but still, it's much more dynamic and interesting than what has been the norm for like... 20, 30 years where mm. any kind of employment policy which is beyond just, well, maybe a few high wages, maybe a minimum wage, and maybe just do a few tweaks here and there, make sure we have full employment, kind of. Um, mm. that, that's been kind of the common sense. So I think it is emerging across in different places, and I guess what I would like to do with autonomy is really to link these these people up just mm. be like, okay, well, look, this, you know, we, we, we all can see each other, or we should see each other, and let's let's um, that's kind of coherent to a new program. I think it is happening quasi-naturally, but I think it's a bit more activity to do that. Fantastic. Cool. So mm. we're winding to the end of the interview, there's about five minutes left or so. So there's a question that we're asking all of our guests, which mm. is, what's something that you think that people, especially young people, should know about the future towards which we're heading? I think, I think we can't avoid the question of the environment. So I think I'm, I've got, obviously I think I've got this in my head at the moment because we've just done a, a new report on this. Um, but I think we have, you know, if you go by the IPCC's report, we have just under 12 years to avoid, you know, catastrophic climate, you know, um, effects. And that's a global problem and it can seem very daunting, but actually it's something which basically any new, anything you think about, about the future should have uh, built into it, is this going to be a sustainable thing that I want or thing that I'm going to do or thing which I'm going to advocate and I'm not just saying it in a kind of like get police for like oh have you put that in the recycling bin or whatever I'm talking about okay um, you know what should there's big questions like what should our economy look like and obviously 
there should be a, basically a hard line around anything which is beyond, which pushes us beyond that 1.5 degree or 2 degree limit. But I'm also thinking about, you know, what, what kind of, what movements, what do you want to engage with, any of those things. You know, I think we should probably start asking ourselves, does it, does it, in what way does it help contribute to uh, a sustainable um, society? And I think that can be in a whole load of ways. Like autonomy, you know, this is an organization which I've helped start. We're trying to do our bit by producing some of the thinking, some of the you know, provocations around that. You might start a, a, you know, might join a union and actually push that union to actually say, well, actually, we're, we, you know, we're actually going to have some criteria by which we're going to stand by for being sustainable. It might not be even joining a union. It might be like starting... You know, whatever, whatever project you're going to start, I think actually we have to think about that now, effectively, because we've got about 12 years to, to, to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page. And then secondly, and this is the, I guess this is, this is like more broad blue sky thinking, I think you should just be ambitious, basically. Yeah. I think you should, you should, if you want to do something, give it a go. Um, cause it, you know, fine, it might fail, it might fail five times, but fail, you know, use the phrase fail better. Um, and I think ultimately now is the time, the crisis of the environment, fine, the crisis of work, the crisis, the, the continual tumultuousness of our economy, you know, huge polarization politically, now we're in a crisis period. This is what something Lewis Mumford would call a storm. It's like all utopias and dystopias kind of come about during a storm. Mm-hmm. And that might be the Wall Street crash, which, which, which around his time people were talking about, you know, Keynes talking about, was writing his 15-hour week stuff just after the Wall Street crash. Um, we, you know, we're post-2008 and we're, post, we're, we're post-austerity in this country as well. So it's, it's time to think big and be, and be ambitious about what you want to achieve, basically. Yeah, I really resonate with that. I feel like it's a time of a lot of confusion and uncertainty, but there's also a lot of really exciting new thinking because in some sense the old models don't really seem to be working anymore. Mm, mm. Yeah, and so it's opportunity to create, you know, something new, something something better. Yes. Hopefully. Yeah, the, the graphic quote which I really like, um, uh, the oldest dying and the new is yet to be born. And sometimes he, talk, he talks about the jagged edges of the future which are just coming into view but it's hard to see what they are. Mm. So it's a real uncertainty but ultimately you, you, you can see glimpses of it here and there and you just need to kind of grab it. Cool, awesome. Well, awesome. thank you very much for coming on. That was... Amazing conversation. I'm sure all of our viewers will hopefully have been very uh, interested and enlightened by what you have to say. Um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, you're writing a couple of books at the moment, aren't you? Do you want yeah. to talk about those for a moment? Yeah, okay. Um, so I've got two, there's, there's two books. One with Helen Hester called Post Work, What It Is, Why It Matters and How We Get There, which is coming out of Bloomsbury, hopefully uh, in spring next year. And another one with Kyle Lewis, my, my fellow co-founder of Autonomy called, um, well, we haven't got a title for it yet. We're calling it, it's going to be around the shorter working week, working title over time. Um, and that's going to come out sometime again uh, next year. So um, look out for that one in hopefully all good bookshops. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. Thank Cheers. you very much. And uh, see you guys in the next episode of Techno Social. Mm-hmm.